As someone who has been at Bel Air Church for 27 years, I have seen this church through a lot of change. And it's always exciting to see the new chapter and what God is going to do. I'm really excited as we move forward. There are lots of opportunities for us to be serving in children's ministry and in youth discipleship. We have an opportunity to invest in the youth and the children of the church where we can disciple them and invest in them and have them grow to know who this Christ is and how to serve Him in their everyday lives. This is going to be a place that we continue to take Scripture seriously. I'm excited that we're going to see our small group ministries multiply and continue to grow and become a place of welcome and nurture and learning for so many more people. I'm excited about the new adult education opportunities that we're going to create. We will be a compassionate church, working with the poor and those who are suffering, that to be the presence of Christ among those who are struggling in our city. And I think that Bel Air Church will be, continues to be a church that we will make a difference in this world. And I am excited to see what God's going to do, um, whether it's in leadership and with our vision, with our congregation, of how we're going to grow, of how the Spirit is going to refresh us. Um, there is a new chapter and a new season, and I am so excited to be a part of that. I'm excited to see people hunger to know God more, to want to listen to that inner voice that comes, that whispers in our ear to say, know me, be still spend time with me. It's an opportunity for people to step up, an opportunity for us as a church to rely on one another and to rely on the rock that is Christ in order to take us into this next chapter. And so we are excited uh, to be able to be a part of that and see where God will lead us. The greatest things are still in front of us. God's going to do wonderful things. I'm just so excited to be a part of that process. My greatest hope is that one day, one day, in the corner somewhere in heaven, there will be a lot of people there because what we do in this church, because of our prayers, because of what we teach in the way that we live our lives, influencing people to follow Christ here and throughout the world. Guys, I am so hopeful God is here and He will continue to do great things through this church. and remain standing. Go ahead and grab the Bible uh, that's under your seat or in front of you, uh, the pew Bible there. We're uh, going to be looking at uh, the book of Deuteronomy, uh, at the, the entire book. No, no, just, just one chapter. Chapter 6, and we're looking at verses 20 through 25, and that's page 144 in that pew Bible if you need a little bit of help figuring out what that is, so where that is. Again, uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6 verses 20 through 25, and we're going to read this together in just a minute when I feel like page turning has come to a minimum and we're all on the same page, literally and figuratively. Some of you are still picking up on what that exactly meant, but that's okay, because you, you were focused on the Word rather than what I was saying, which is good. So let's read together. When your children ask you in time to come, what is the meaning of the decrees and the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your children, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. 
the Lord displayed before our eyes great and awesome signs and wonders against Egypt, against Pharaoh and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land that he promised an oath to our ancestors. Then the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our lasting good, so as to keep us alive, as is now the case. If we diligently observe this entire commandment before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, we will be in the right. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We are uh, excited this morning to um, start our speaker series. Uh, we're, we're excited that it, actually we're bringing somebody from inside, uh, from uh, Dr. Henry Cloud, who's a member of this church, uh, comes and worships here. I, I'm understanding that um, I think he sits up here, so if you, if you want to harass him in future Sundays, you're going to be looking up there for him. Uh, I think a, a lot is revealed about a man in terms of the dog that he has. And so uh, Dr. Henry Cloud has a Bichon Frise. No, he does not. Um, he, has a, he has a poodle. No, he does not. He has a, uh, a Doberman Pinscher Rottweiler mix. So get out the way, because here comes Dr. Cloud. Come on up. Thank you. Let me, uh, let me pray for Dr. Cloud. Let's pray for him together. God, we are thankful for this man of God, this man who has so taken your uh, message to, into so many different places that we could never imagine. God, we pray your blessing on his life and the work that he does. We pray your blessing on his family, his wife, Tori, and his kids, Lucy and Olivia. We are thankful for uh, their support of, of, of their dad and their husband. We pray that you would continue to just uh, protect them from anything that might get in the way of what you want to do in their lives, God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. 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 Dr. Cloud. Thank you, sir. <clears throat> Hi, guys. Hi. Yeah, I was talking with um, Mark this past week, and I said, Mark, you know, it's your first Sunday to be gone. Um, and they bring the shrink in. I don't know what that means. I said, I can talk about grief, or we can, we can talk about gratitude and celebration. What do you think we ought to talk about? So Mark and I were laughing about that. But in, in light of that, that th this is our first Sunday without Mark, I thought, like, you know, like all the great teams do, when, when, when the great one retires, they retire the jersey. Right? So... I thought we should, um, we should retire Brewer's jersey and um, maybe we'll hang it up there somewhere. So, all right, I'm going to see if uh, we can do that. Okay. <clears throat> um, I didn't go to preacher school. Um, I'm a shrink by training. Um, and when I went to school, they taught us how to, you know, I'm sort of the pooper scooper in life, really. We, we come along, I'm not really the inspirational speaker type, but... Since I didn't go to preacher school, I looked up what they do in preacher school. And what they do in preacher school is they, they say, okay, when you preach, here's what you do. Tell them what you're going to tell them, and then tell them, and then tell them what you told them. Okay? So here's what I'm going to tell you today. I am going to talk about happiness. And I'm going to be coming at this um, from a perspective that, that touches a lot of parts of my life, and I think probably yours too. 
But I'm going to look at um, the scientific evidence that we know about happiness. And as a psychologist by, by training, and I do a lot of work in the business world and with leaders, I spend a lot of time in all of that research. And, and here's what happened. About probably 10 years ago or so, the president of the American Psychological Association went before the whole field and said, okay, guys, we've been depressed for too long. You know, psychology and psychiatry has for 100 years basically studied in depth the downside of life. You know, we're depressed and anxious and anxious about being depressed and eating disorders and relationship dysfunction. How many of you are, are dysfunctional, by the way? Okay. How many of you came with somebody who's dysfunctional today? That's good. Okay. If they don't know that, tell them that the denial sermon is, is next door. But we, we've been studying this for all, you know, all these years, and what he did was he, he made a call to the field. And he said, okay, let's go study happiness. Let's go study thriving. Let's go study and find out why do people do well. And people who do well, what causes it? And so you know what happened? The field did it in droves. And I mean, literally, now if you go out there, there are graduate, there are doctoral programs. You know, universities got behind this, and they gazillions of studies over the last decade about what makes people thrive. And here's what happened. Some very robust findings have emerged. And this whole field emerged about the thriving side of life. Really, what causes happiness? And here's what happened with me. I spent a lot of time in that research and deep down in the journals and looking at all that. And one of my publishers asked me to write a book showing how faith and happiness, the science of happiness, go together, if they go together. And so what I did was, when I looked at the research, I got to tell you something. It was like being born again again. Because here's what happened. When I looked at, and this is all secular scientific research, when I looked at that research, what happened was it looks like you're reading the Bible. It looks like, and, and, and the reason I chose the passage that, that we just shared this morning in Deuteronomy 6, it's really that question. You know, Moses is, 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 you know, he's put all this stuff together. And what the passage says is in the future, when your children ask you, what's the meaning of all this religious stuff? All these laws and these statutes and all the stuff we have to learn. Here's what he says. He goes, look, guys, we were, we were slaves in Egypt. God brought us out with a mighty hand, and he gave us these ways to walk in so that it always would go well with us and we would prosper. And the Hebrew meaning of that word there is a, meaning, is a word that it doesn't mean just, you know, financial prosperity, although it can include that. But what it means is, it means an overall sense of well-being. And today, what we're going to look at is, what are some of the research findings about well-being? And what we find is that it's exactly what God tells us. And we're going to say this because he made our brains and our hearts and our souls, and so it worked. So I'm going to give you a few of them today. We don't have time, obviously, to go into all of it. But there are these piles of findings, and we're going, to, we're going to visit a few of them. And if you're happy, it'll tell you why. And if you're not, it'll tell you some things to do. And if you have to change some things in your life, um, that's not always easy. 
I um, can relate to that. I, I travel quite a bit, you know, quick trips, to two and, two and three-day trips here and there for my work. And um, when I travel, I get fat. <laughs> and this past, uh, you know, couple of seasons, I, because, you know, I fly in late some, somewhere, and then I got to get up early, and I'm flying in at 11 or 12. I got a 7 o'clock meeting, and I don't go work out. I order food. You know, I'm just tired. And so I get off my routine, and I get fat. And so I kept telling myself, all right, I'm going to get with the program. I'm going to get back on, you know, my regimen and all this. And I wasn't doing it. Can you all relate to that? Have you ever said you were going to do this and hadn't done it? And so I kept telling myself, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And I didn't do it. So I picked up one of my stupid books. And (laughs) what it said in there was, you know, if there's something you really want to do and you're not doing it, you're not going to do it. I mean, if you really want to do it and you really want to do it for a long time and you're not doing it, you're not going to do it. And the reason is, because if you wanted to do it, and you could do it, you would have done it, but you want to do it, and you can't do it. You're not doing it, so you probably can't do it. That's what the book says. <laughs> Ever heard of a New Year's resolution? All right. So here's what it says in the next paragraph. The way you're going to do it is you can't do it. You've got to get help from the outside to do it, and then you can do it. So I go to the gym. I hire a trainer. They assign me this young, skinny, mean woman. And there's nothing worse than skinny and mean at 6 o'clock in the morning. But I'm, I'm committed, so I get with the program. And so I'm in there, and, and like I'm working it, and I go there, and I go there, and I go back the next day. What it feels like for 10 years, my wife said, it's been like a week, you know, when I'm griping about it. So, but, but it had been a, no, a number of weeks, and I'm feeling really good because I'm back on the program, right? So one morning, we're sitting there. She's got me with this big bar, and I'm doing all the stuff, strengthening a core or whatever that is. And I'm, I'm doing this stuff, and then right in the middle of it, I look at her, and I go, oh, no. She said, what? I said, we forgot to take the before pictures. She looks at me, and she says, oh, we still can. I don't know who sent her to, you know, make people inspired school, but she needs to go back. But the point is, you know, don't get discouraged if this stuff takes a while. All right, so let's hop into the research. Here's the deal. All of this research, and I'm talking worldwide, different cultures, different socioeconomic statuses, stati, status, how do you say it? bunches of people. Um, You know, ethnicities, all of this stuff all over the world. Here's what they find. You ready for this? The art, the overarching finding is this. Only 10% of our happiness, 10% comes from anything circumstantial. 10%. If you get the job you want or didn't, if you get to live in the house you want to or you can't get it, if you are dying for that relationship and you didn't get it, or, you know, rich or poor, job, no job, whatever it is we think. You know, it's like men are only one gadget away from contentment at any moment, right? And we think if I get that, then I'm going to be happy. And here's the deal. When we get that, whatever that is, the promotion, the job, whatever it is, you do get a bump. About 10%, and then, then what happens is the new car smell goes away. You're in a relationship. Honeymoon's over. You come out from under, out from under the ether, 
right? And you go back down, not down, but you go back to a basic set point, like a thermostat, of who we are as a person. So if we're happy before we get the job, you're going to be happy after, and on and on and on. Now, this doesn't mean we don't go through horrible circumstances that, that, you know, are traumatic and we get depressed and all that, nor does it mean things like clinical depression and things that have to be treated. What we're talking about here is our overall sense of well-being in life. And so here's what they find, 10% external. After that, we go back to who we are as a person. Then that set point basically is composed of two factors. One is kind of a constitutional makeup, a temperament, if you've, ever, if you've ever had a baby or known somebody that has and you go to the nursery at the hospital and they're in the baskets, you see some with a temperament of they're just so happy. Ah, ba, ba, ba. They're sitting there looking around. This is a really nice place. And they're goo-gooing. And, and then you see the ones next to them. They're like, <laughs> you know, those are the future attorneys. And they're just not, you know, so people have different temperaments, Right. So here's what they find. You take that factor out of it, then you have this other bunch of variants of what makes people happy. So if it's not the 10% and it's not the temperament, what is it? And here's what they find. There is a set of life practices that happy people do that unhappy people don't do. A set of practices. And when I read those and spent a few years in those, it was like going back all the way to the Jewish law that God laid out and told us how to live. So we don't have time to go into all of them. I'm going to share a few of them with you this morning. Number one, these aren't in any particular order, though this is the most robust one. Happy people have cable. No, I'm just seeing if you're awake. (laughs) Happy people connect. Happy people connect. Now, what this means is we're not talking about just you have people in your life, because there are a lot of disconnected people in relationships. What this means is that from the depths of our hearts, minds, souls, and strength, that we are connected to other hearts, minds, souls, and strengths, in a way that there is an exchange, and I'm going to give you a technical term here, that there are transformational experiences that happen in your heart on an ongoing basis. That we are transformed from one state to another through relationship. Now let me give you an example, transformational experience. We're going through a kind of a lonely moment in life and we go to our small group and we connect and we talk about it we process it we walk out of there in a different state than we went in and these have to be connected from our need states so what is it we're needing we're needing life to be flowing into us and we are the we we think that we're like God we think that we're self-sustaining God's the only self-sustaining person The rest of us are created beings that draw life from outside of ourselves. So life must be put into us. There's no such thing as a self-made man or a self-made woman. It's an oxymoron. You know what an oxymoron is? 
Two words don't go together, right? Microsoft works, you, you know. <laughs> Self-made, we didn't make ourselves and we can't sustain ourselves. So here's, here's the question. Where do you go? And how do you get sustaining connectedness? Because what we know is this changes our lives. People that are connected, that have people that they are current with in an abiding kind of way, they have different lives. Their immune systems are different. They reach their goals differently. They have better health. When they do get sick, they recover from things like heart attack, stroke, other illnesses, like twice as fast. When they have terminal illness, the quality of their life is way different. And on and on and on. In 08, in the financial meltdown, I did a lot of work on Wall Street in all of that, you know, because I do a lot of leadership and business consulting, and then everybody was just crashing, right? And <clears throat> one of the CEOs of one of the big banks asked me if I could do anything for, their, uh, for the people in the field, because they were just having, you know, it was just horrible out there for months and months and months and months. So we put together groups of about 20, or in 20 markets, groups of their highest performers. And I flew around the country and I sat with them in the midst of the downturn. And these are like Barron's top 50 kind of people. And I sat with them and I said, what's it like for you? What's it like for your clients? Ask them two questions. And I had people, these are high performers, saying, I've never felt like this. I go, I, I, I've been a leader in the industry for 20 years. I go to work, I can't pick up the phone. I just stare at my computer screen. Somebody else said, I wake up at 2.30 every morning. The person next to him said, mine's 3.14. Somebody else said, mine's 4.11. <laughs> and they all were having sleep disturbances, and they were all starting to feel different than they had ever felt before at a systemic level. So we put together this program. There are a lot of components to it, but the first one was that I had to get them connected from their need states. So we filmed some stuff on DVD. We took 500 branch managers, flew them into Dallas, trained them in this. They took it back, delivered it to 10,000 brokers, and we did it just like a church does it. We put them in small groups in their branches. And we started having them process the life of this downturn together and with their clients. And what you started to see was their brains began to work again and function because here's what we know, that when the brains are not connected, the hearts are not connected, they're not firing on all cylinders. But when you are connected, you do. And we begin to see them come up with incredible strategies and performance and turn things around because they got connected. Now, why does this work? It's because God made us that way. Do you know that your biology, your brain chemistry, your physical chemistry, and the rest of your body, your psychology, every part of you works differently when you're deeply connected. But that has to come from places where you're really talking about the real stuff. One of my favorite studies about this was back um, before PETA got control of the earth. And they put monkeys in a cage and I love monkeys. I have dogs. I love animals. They weren't hurting them, but I don't think you could do this now. But, but they put the monkeys in the cage, and they just traumatized them. I mean, just scared them. They didn't hurt them, but they scared them. And they're like shaking the cage and flashing lights and symbols, and these monkeys are freaked out. And so they take their, their, the chemistry of their brains, and they draw the blood and, and do all that, and they get a baseline of the stress hormones in the brain. 
Now, here's what happens when you have stress hormones in your brain. It basically shuts down thinking. God designed us that way. If you're on a train track and you hear a horn, the last thing you want to do is pull out your notepad and go, how fast is it traveling? You know, you don't want to think. You want to react. You want to fight or flight. And see, when we get under stress, sometimes that's what we do. We even push against the people we need to connect to the most. In friendship and family and couples, when we're under stress and we're not really connected in an ongoing way, we even fight connection. Or we flight, we withdraw, and we isolate. So here's what happened with the monkeys. They measured the stress hormones, and then they did one thing. They opened the door, and they put the monkey's buddy in the cage. That's it, and shut the door. So he's got another monkey in the cage. Leave the other monkey in the cage for a few minutes. Then they draw the blood again. The stress hormones have dropped by 50% just because there's another monkey in the cage they're connected to. So here's my question to you. Who's your monkey? (laughs) Turn to the person next to you and say, baby, be my monkey. Some of you got some monkeys in your cages you probably need to fire as well. We won't talk about that one. All right. So get connected. Number two, happy people are givers. Happy people are givers. I swear to you, I did not know today was Giving Sunday. They, when they asked me to do this, it was a while back, and, and I started praying and thinking through the topic, and I thought I was going to And then I find out, in fact, and, and I invited some friends today who don't attend this church, and then they come and they find out, and I found out, oh, no, this is the church. This is the day where we all make our financial commitments, and all my friends are going to come and think I was trying to. Now, I, you know, just you guys, my friends that I invited, don't give. It's everybody else, okay? That's not why I'm saying this. This is research. This is research. Happy people are givers, and what they find out when they study people, people who basically their lives are about building things in their lives, and then sharing those things with others around them, whatever they might be. It might be money, but it might be that you walk around in life with a lot of courage, and so you're an encourager. Or you walk around in life with the gift of hospitality, or in your neighborhoods, or in your companies. Whatever it is, we are designed, and the research shows that people who give, we are designed to be givers and sharers. And when we do, we change. We're healthier. Again, our immune systems, our physiological systems work differently. Our outlook is different. They do actual, like, like giving and gratitude sorts of measurements on people, and they find levels of mood sustaining over time changing. And, and this isn't a one-time thing. It's when people build their lives, and their lives are about giving back and involved, they're different inside. And the reason is, there's spiritual and physical reasons for this. When Olivia, our oldest, was um, about three and a half, she went off to preschool one morning. Um, she, she, she went to this, this kind of two-hour, a couple times a week preschool. And so I said, Livy, you know, we had been talking about sharing. And I said, here's what I want you to do. When you go to, to, to class today, I want you to share something with somebody, and then we'll talk about it. She says, okay. So she comes back and in the afternoon. I said, so, so how'd it go? She said, well, I did it. And I said, well, well what happened? She said, well, 
I was there, and I had a cookie, and there was a girl, Susie, and she didn't have a cookie, and so I took part of my cookie, and I broke it, and I walked over, and I gave it to her. I said, Libby, that's great. That's exactly what I'm talking about. She goes, yeah, and, and she's kind of seen with it, and I said, well, how was it? And she looked at me, and she looks up, and she goes, well, Daddy, what was it? I said, what was what? She goes, when I gave her the cookie, what was it? I said, what do you mean? She said, in here. I said, what are you talking about? She goes, well, when I gave her the cookie, it felt really warm in here. Pointing to her little chest. I said, Livy, that's love. That's how God made us. That when we share, we feel different. And I was about to lose it, and so I went into my psychologist and said, actually, what was happening was your dopamine levels and your serotonin were beginning. <laughs> but you know what? That's exactly right. Do you know this? When you give or when you share or when you give to somebody, now keep your seats. I don't want you running out when I tell you this because you got something to go do. When you give, the same pleasure centers light up in your brain that light up when you have good food or sex. That's what happens when you give. Same brain stuff. Now, if you can find a way to give and have good food while you're having sex, <laughs> we may never find you again. But see, God has wired us this way. He's wired us this way. And it's not just, you know, today we'll make our pledges, but that pledge is to plant ourselves in an abiding relationship with the church community over the course of a year of how we're going to give of talents and our resources and all of that. And God says it always starts here, but it's supposed to be to the person in the cubicle next to you at work. It's supposed to be with the neighbor. It's supposed to be with the friends. And life is just so much richer. You know, it's like our heart. We've got two pipes coming in, two pipes going out. And when God gives you a cookie break part of it off, whatever that is you possess, and give it, and things will be different. One more. Now, how many of you are anal? <laughs> Raise your hands. See, this is really interesting. There's more anal. I'm a psychologist. I know the percentages. There's more anal people in here that raise their hands. <clears throat> there are. And what happens is anal people don't know they're, they're anal. They think they're right. Right? Sort of, like, sort of like the morning people. How did they get in control of the earth? Well, they got there first. But it's not, it doesn't mean they're right. But the pickier weren't always rules in a relationship. And the anal people, this is going to feel normal to you. But if you're not, I want you to get a little more anal about this. And here's the next one. Happy people set and reach goals. See, anal people do this all the time. They have to-do lists for to-do lists. But here's what we know about the brain and the way that God designed us, that happy people don't just kind of exist throughout life and throughout the day and just kind of let the flow take them where it takes them. Happy people are purposeful Again, you don't have to be compulsive or anal, but happy people think about 
What is it I'm trying to accomplish over this next year? What am I trying to accomplish in my marriage, in my family, in my business, in my health? And they have a plan for that. It doesn't have to be anal. It doesn't have to be compulsive. Here's the deal. God has made us to be purposeful. And there seems to be this chip in the brain somewhere that has to do with looking into the future and visualizing a desired state. God is a creator, and he thinks of stuff that doesn't exist, and then he brings it to fruition, and he's made us to be that way. And we are not fully living out the life that, designed for, that God designed until we are visualized, and I don't mean any New Age weirdo stuff. I mean thinking about what does the promised land look like in your relationships, in your marriage, or in your dating life, or in your company, or in your career. What does it look like, and see it, and then have faith to step out, and let's bring it about through setting some goals. That What we know is that people that are happy do this. It's a practice I do with, with our family and with our kids. We sit down, and we have these cheesy family meetings they're, they're really fun. But part of it that the kids hate is I want them to set their stretch goals. So I'll ask them about their goals for the week, and we'll all have goals and say, you know, what are we going to do this week that's going to push us a little further? And everybody gets to speak into everybody's goals and give feedback and all this. And so Lucy, our little one, when she was, um, she would have been probably six and, and just learning to read. And <laughs> she, my Olivia, the older one, is kind of the, you know, she's the anal one. She, she's, when she was four years old, she would lay out her outfit for the next month, and, and she, she's got her life plan. But Luz is a little bit of the artist, right-brain type, and her favorite word is, you know, now or later. And she's just kind of the artistic type. So she's reading, she's learning to read, and <laughs> she likes the pictures better than the words at this point. But I'm trying to push her down the road and kind of, you know, get her to read. And so I'm going on a trip, and I'm going to be gone for, you know, three or four days. And so we're, we're doing our stretch goals, and, and we're talking about what we're going to do this week. And Lucy said, I want to read. I want to have a goal of reading. I said, okay, how many books do you want to read? She goes, I'm going to read ten books this week. Everybody rolls their eyes. Lucy, we can't get you to read three pages. You're not going to read 10 books. She goes, no, I'm going to read 10 books. I said, you're not going to read 10 books, Luz. Come on, one of the things about goals is they have to be realistic. You're not going to read 10 books. How about two before I get back? She goes, no, I'm going to read 10. So I'm thinking, you know what, this would be a good lesson. Say 10, I'll set her up for failure. She'll learn. <laughs> you know, you got to have realistic goals. There'll be a lesson here. All right, read 10 books. I go off on my trip. I come back. I'm walking in that night, and the whole family's there, and you can tell they're kind of like something's up. And Lucy's standing there, and she's looking a little shy. And I said, what happened? And Olivia goes, Lucy read 14 books. 14! <laughs> and we jumped up and celebrated and all this, and it was a great time. And then the following Monday, and this is like on a Friday, the following Monday, I'm putting her to bed, and we're saying prayers. And then I looked at her, I said, Luz, I got a problem. She said, what? I said, I can't work. She goes, what do you mean? I said, I went to work today and I couldn't, I couldn't work. She said, why? I said, I can't concentrate. 
She said, why? I said, I said, because I'm in a meeting. I'm trying to talk to somebody. And, and all I can think about is, Lucy read 14 books. And I'm jumping up and down. And she's going, Dad, Dad, stop. And I said, what? She says, you got to take that thought and put it back here. I said, what do you mean? She said, you got to take, when you're working, you got to take that thought and put it back here. I said, okay, why? She said, because your work, it's got to come from your core. I said, thanks, Luce. But here's the deal. If you go looking around our house and things are slow in the afternoon sometime or, or at night, but you know what you'll find? You'll find Lucy reading. And <clears throat> she's reading because there was a structure of bringing out that giftedness and that passion that she has to bring in a goal to fruition. And that's what I find about us. That God has wired us to take our gifts and our desires and our talents and bring them to fruition. But to bring them to fruition takes sometimes some specific goals and objectives that we're setting for what a good day would look like, what a good vacation would look like, what a good holiday would look like, what a good week, what a good month, what a good year. And to ask God to help us to move down that trail. And then I'll close with this. Here's what we know as well from the research. Tons of research about this. Happy people have faith. There seems to be a faith chip somewhere in the human brain, in the human being that when we study people that have transcendent purposes and they develop a spiritual life that transcends their circumstances or what's going on, there is this button that gets pushed inside when we get out of this, this material world And as the Bible says, when we trust, which is a relationship, when we reach past ourselves and put faith into the one that transcends us, it changes things inside. And it can be measured in health, blood pressure, immune systems, reaching goals, a lot of things. But people that have a rich spiritual life are different. I'm probably standing here today because my father woke up to that at about early 40s. He, um, I wasn't born yet, <clears throat> and he had started a company, he was overworked and overstressed and working all the time, not doing anything, things we're talking about here, and just was ruining his health, and one day he went to a movie theater and he collapsed, and They took him to the hospital, and they told him he had about six months to live, that his heart just wasn't going to make it. And so they said, go get your affairs in order. And what he did was he went to a different hospital in a different city and stayed there for about a month, and they did all this stuff and looking at him and figuring it out. And finally the guy comes back, and the doctor, and he sits down. He says, you know what? There's just nothing wrong with your heart. He says, it's your life. And he told him, he said, you got to make some changes. And so he did some things. But one of the things he did was he decided that he needed to get out of 
get past just this material day-to-day stress and career and all of that. And he started to practice, and he, he had an awakening in his life. He, he reached out to God, and he established a relationship with God in a deeper way. And what I saw him do, he started then, and I was born later. When I, when I was old enough to figure out, who has babies in their 40s? I said, Dad, I wasn't planned, was I? <laughs> when I got old enough to figure this out. And he goes, no, but we try to make the most out of our mistakes. <laughs> but what I watched him... Every day when he would come home from work, he would sit down in his chair, he would open his Bible, and he would just read for a little while. And what he told me was that every day when he did that, at the end of the day, all the stuff he had gone through and was working on in the business, he said, I would give it to God and say, you worry about this, I'm home now. And you deal with this. And he said, I'll pick it up the next morning. We buried him a few years ago at 94. And that turnaround in his life drove all the others that we were talking about, that he got much more connected, and he became a giver and a server. And he had goals that he realized. A lot of tribulation, a lot of problems, as we all go through. But what God says is if we go through the ups and downs of life, doing it according to his ways, that even the bad times, we will come out with well-being. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that. That as great as this world is that you've put around us, with a, like the Garden of Eden, with all the different trees that we get to eat of and enjoy, that it's supposed to be in relationship with you, and that that's where it begins. And so we thank you for that. God, help us to be purposeful, to walk in the ways that, that were given to us in your law so that we can be connected in giving and reach dreams and goals and establish all that it means to have well-being as we follow your ways and we thank you for giving them to us. In Jesus' name, amen.